You're listening to the City Church Tallahassee podcast. For more information about City Church, please visit us online at citychurchtallahassee.com. Well, good morning and welcome to City Church. My name's Hunter Levine. I'm the college pastor here, but more importantly, I'm a church member here. And I've been fortunate enough to call this church home for 13 years. In fact, as we talk about Easter at the Civic Center, a friend of mine, Sam, invited me to a very similar Christmas service as a high schooler. And through that, I found community, I found the gospel, I found the scriptures. And I just before we even begin today, I just want to let you know how uh, important and meaningful this church has been to me and how grateful I am that my friend invited me uh, to come to a service that lifted up the gospel of Jesus Christ that changed my life forever. We've uh, been in a series in the book of Revelation, looking at the seven churches. And what we've seen in this series is as we study the book of Revelation, it's not so much about how it ends in regards to what are the specific details, but it's more about what really matters in the end. Like what really matters in the end and what does Christian faithfulness look like in the meantime? Now when it comes to the book of Revelation, there's roughly, roughly three types of, of Christians when it comes to the book of Revelation. The first type, this is the type of person who gets geeked up and excited. They love talking about Revelation. So you could be at dinner with friends and you could say, man, thanks for inviting me to this occasion. And across the table, they say, somebody say Revelation. You know, like they just want to talk about it. They love the book of Revelation. They've studied it and they, they just get geeked up and amped up. And then there's some Christians who are truthfully just really confused about the book of Revelation. Just confused, really scared to talk about it because they don't want to feel dumb. They don't want to feel like they don't know what's going on. And when they read the book of Revelation, it makes them want to buy some MRE meals and put tinfoil on their heads and hide. You know, they're just confused. And then there's a third category of Christians that they feel kind of apathetic to it. Like they just don't, don't really care that much about the book at all. They kind of fail to see like what, is this, like what does this really have to do with my life? Because when I'm struggling with things and I go to the Psalms and I read the Psalms and it's, it speaks to me, I feel like it connects, but I don't really care that much about the book of Revelation. And really, if I could just be honest with you, that was me for a long time. Not necessarily scared of it, not geeked up about it, but just apathetic to it. But what we've seen as we've studied this several chapters here is that Revelation isn't there to bring us confusion. It's there to bring us clarity about what truly matters in the end. It helps us to have an eternal perspective and it ties to our Christian faithfulness today. We've been going through the letter of 1 John as a, a college ministry, and one of the things I love about the letter of 1 John is it speaks to this tension that if you're a follower of Christ, you've placed your faith in Jesus, this is the tension you live in, and it's this. You are a loved child of God. Through the grace of Christ, you have received the love of the Father. That is true, and yet you're a foreigner who is not home. Your citizenship is in heaven. And so you are a loved child who is not yet home. And we live in this tension. And the book of Revelation helps us to understand as God's people, how do we live as children of God in a world that is not our home? And that's what we see. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to Revelation 3, verse 14. That's where we're going to be this morning. Last week, we talked about the church of Philadelphia. This morning's church, Laodicea, set about 40 miles south of Philadelphia on the same major postal road. And there was also a couple other important trade roads that ran through the city. 
And because there was so much traffic heading through Laodicea, a lot of business was happening there, and it made the city a very affluent city. They had banking, they had wool, there was a famous school of medicine. People would actually have great access to medical treatment for the time. It was a huge medical complex. You could actually think of it as Gainesville with less denim. And so Laodicea had this reputation. And the reputation was that this is a happening place. In fact, this city became so wealthy that when a major earthquake hit Laodicea, they were actually able to refuse money from Rome and say, no, Rome, we don't need your money. We have enough money here. We'll build it back ourselves." And they did. And they built this beautiful, amazing city with all sorts of attractions and features. And Laodicea was a happening place of business and commerce. It was a lot like the, the West today. You could think of a New York-type place, the type of place a young Taylor Swift would want to, you know, move to and reinvent herself. Like, this is Laodicea. And it was an amazing place to live, but there was one big drawback. There was one huge challenge that the city had to work through, and that's that it had no good water supply. They had medical, they had commerce, they had tons of different religions, they had beautiful facilities, but they had a one big drawback. They had no good water supply, and so they had to pipe in their water six miles from the south via an aqueduct. And this is the way that they got water. And the reason I bring this up is, in understanding this passage, we need to understand their wealth, their affluence, and we also need to understand their water, their challenge to be able to have water to drink, to bathe, to clean, to cook. And through understanding those two things, it's going to help us understand the spiritual need that John is actually addressing when it comes to these Christians. So let's look at this together. Revelation 3, verse 14. It says, Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen. Amen, amen meaning true. Like that's what we say it at the end of a prayer. We say amen, like truly, yes, in agreement. So, so, so thus says the true God, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I love that the originator, he's the one who has authority. He created all things. He sustains all things. Wealthy church of Laodicea, he owns all things. It's all his. He's the originator of God's creation. Verse 15, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. Now what's happening here? Well, when John's talking about this idea of being lukewarm, he's talking about more than just zeal. Although that certainly matters, and we'll talk about that in a moment, the passage is often chalked up just to say, they would just read that verse and say, we just got to be on fire for God, so, so buy Christian t-shirts, wear Christian bracelets, burn your CDs, change your bio on Instagram, delete social media, and let's go charge the town. Be on fire for the Lord. But it's actually talking about more than that, because if that was the case, why would Jesus say, I wish you were cold? Like, isn't that strange? I wish you were hot or cold. Wouldn't he just say, I wish you were hot? I wish you were on fire. If it was just about religious zeal, he would just say, I wish you were zealous. I wish you were people who were on fire for me. But this brings us back to the water supply issue in Laodicea. Cold water and hot water both served important purposes at that time. Simply put, cold water would be used for things like drinking. It's very important. 
And then warm water would be used for things like healing. In fact, at the time, they, they were, didn't live too far from a, a known healing spring where people would go and they might take what you would call a medical pilgrimage and they would go in these warm waters and they served an important purpose. And when Laodicea would actually pipe in their water from the spring that, that was six miles south, they would actually place it in jars so that it could go from a lukewarm water that got piped in to actually a cold water that you could drink and would be refreshing. In fact, there's places in the world that still do this today. And so they would be pretty quick to understand what John's revelation was really referring to, that I wish you were cold or warm. I wish that, that you were living out the purpose that God has for your life. If you're taking notes, this is the first thing I want you to see, that our lives are not just meant to be given to the Lord, but also used for his purposes. And what I mean by that is I think we live in a culture where a lot of times we can say, yeah, I've given my life to Christ, but truthfully, nothing in our life changes. There's no real repentance there's no real sense of purpose in our world. We're not living missionally. And so we might say that we've given our life to Christ, but the truth is we haven't given our life to Christ in a way that Romans 12 says, which is to bring your life before Christ like a living sacrifice. To, to, to say, Jesus, I place my faith in you and I, I want to live for you. I want to have a purpose here on this earth to be a light. And so what this passage is pointing us to is that we are called to a purpose, to a work. He says, I know your works, what you're doing with your life, the things that you're choosing to engage in. And what we do with our life matters. And this is not just pastors. This is not just vocational missionaries. This is all of us. The ins and outs, the daily lives that we live matter to the Lord and they're meant to be lived for him and his purposes. And when it says vomit, it's not talking about rejecting a true believer who's had a slump, it's refer referring to someone who's lukewarm in the sense that they've not actually given their life to Christ at all. Maybe they've raised their hand in a service. Maybe they would tell people that they're a Christian around Easter. But this isn't somebody who's actually surrendered their life to Christ and placed their faith in him. And this is the concern of Laodicea. And here's the hang-up. Here's where really all this is stemming from. Verse 17, for you say that I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I need nothing. And you don't realize that you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. They thought they were fine. I mean, don't you see the city that we live in? We rebuilt this ourselves. We didn't even need Rome. Do you see our medical practice? Do you see the culture, the food, the people, the commerce? And from a worldly standpoint, Laodicea really was fine. It was an incredible city. But the problem was the people of the church of Laodicea were focused on their earthly situation in a way that caused them to neglect their spiritual standing and their spiritual need. See, they got so caught up in their own works, their own buildings, their own success that they forgot their actual spiritual need. So I just want to take a few moments here just to talk about a few dangers that we can fall into that's very similar in our life. The first one is the danger of complacency. The danger of complacency, just pure indifference. Thinking to yourself, what I do doesn't really matter. Like, sure, there's a God, and he's at work in the world, and he wants me to be a pretty good person, but really, my life doesn't matter. You know, I'm just here to build a good business, provide for my family, try to have a small footprint environmentally, whatever you might fill in the blank, but it's not really a God who really expects much of me. Like, it's not a God that cares what conversations I have with my neighbor. There's not a God that cares about 
what thoughts I have in my mind late at night. Right? Just complacency, just not a concern. And maybe we'll do a little bit of what author Robert Mulholland uh, coined superficial tinkering. Superficial tinkering. Like maybe we'll tinker in some things and we'll go to some Bible studies here and there and we'll go to some services here and there. Just enough to make us feel good. But the truth is we just, we don't really have a huge concern. Another danger is this, the danger of self-satisfaction. This is much like the church of Laodicea saying what I've done on my own is enough. I'm a good enough person. And probably what they did is they made the mistake that many of us did, and they linked their earthly financial success with the blessing of God, thinking, if God wasn't happy with me, I wouldn't have a successful business. Right? So I'm good enough. I'm pretty content in myself. I'm satisfied in myself. And I want to be clear here, the problem was never money. The the problem was the feeling of complacency and self-satisfaction that came with it. It caused them to miss and forget their need for Christ's grace in their lives. And here's the greatest danger, the the danger of confusion. Confusion about what really matters the most, a blindness to what truly matters in our lives. And what we're seeing here in the church of Laodicea and what we see in our own lives is not just a problem of ignorance, it's a problem of idolatry. What we worship, what we place our, our hope in, And here's the deal. Most of us don't worship false gods who have statues and temples and names. At the time, that was more common. There would be a god. He would have a statue. He would have a temple. It would be this god. And if you needed this thing, you went to him. And if you needed this thing, you went to this god. And if you needed this thing, you went to this god. And here's what we've done. Rather than just worshiping gods with names and statues, we've just decided to worship the things themselves. We're like Kirkland Brand or whatever Sam's have. Like we've cut out the middleman of statues. And we've just decided to just worship the same things that they wanted. Our comfort, our prosperity. We're heading towards the wrong finish line with the American dream becoming our functional God. If we could just have that type of life, then we would be happy. Any uh, distance runners in the room, long distance runners? I'm just kidding, you don't need to raise your hand. We saw the sticker when you pulled in. Had a couple stickers on there. I, uh, believe it or not, I've actually ran a couple, um, ran a couple races. And uh, one time I made a pretty big mistake. So I show up to this race and uh, like I thought it was like, you know, a lot of like times there's races and then like a charity thing. So people like me show up just to like be a good sport. And you're like, can't I just give money? Like... And so I show up and there's like, all of a sudden I'm around a bunch of really intense people and they have like unnecessary compression sleeves, they have Switzerland engineered high shorts, they have expensive shoes, they're checking their pulse, like I haven't had a physical in years, this guy's giving himself three physicals during the run, right? They wear the watch on the inside out so they can look at it I guess when they're, I don't know. So I'm running this race and it occurs to me that there's a 5k and a 10k. And what they do is all of us start at the same time in the same place. Maybe you've been to one of these races. Now, I, I don't train for 5Ks. This is not my thing. But I made the mistake of accidentally going down the wrong path and ended up kind of run walking. You know how it is. Run walking a 10K. I kind of gone down the wrong path. I, I, ha- I was going down the wrong destination. This is what's happening with the church of Laodicea. This is what happens with us. We start heading down the wrong path. We have the wrong finish line. 
We're pursuing the wrong thing. And so, yeah, we might not be worshiping a literal statue, but we're chasing and pursuing the American dream of comfort and success and popularity and affluence. And we think to ourselves that the American dream can give us what only God can give us. And here's the problem with that. He says, look, you think you have it all. You're wretched, but you're not good people. You're pitiful. You're not successful people. You're pitiful. You're poor, you're blind, you don't see things as they truly are. You're naked, you might have a nice wardrobe, you might have a nice truck, you might have a gate around your house. But yet when it comes to what truly matters, you're naked. You're confused about what really matters in the midst of your affluence. And you're missing your true need. So look what he says next. I advise that you buy from me gold refined in fire, so that you may be rich White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. See, the world is constantly trying to talk to us about our needs. This is what you need. You you know why you're not happy? Because you haven't bought this from me yet. You haven't taken this vacation. You haven't got this upgrade. You don't have a big enough house. You don't have a good enough spouse. Whatever you think, they're just one thing away. You're almost there. And guess what? The world can sell it to you. The world can give it to you. And then once that wears off, they can give you the next thing, and the next thing, and the next thing. And what we start to do, Christians in this room too, we start to actually believe it. We actually start to believe that maybe we could be happy if we would just shop from the same place that the rest of the world is shopping from, and pursued the same things the rest of the world was pursuing. But look what God says in verse 14, he says, come to me. In verse 18, he says, buy from me. What you're looking for, come to me me and I'll give you gold not literal not like some sort of late night info commercial with coins or something but gold in the sense of you want something with real value lasting value come to me clothes you you need your guilt and your shame to be covered come to me ointment you want to talk about healing you need to be healed you need to see come to me, buy from me. And no matter how much you have or how much you don't have, your greatest need is Christ. All of us in the room, that's the thing that brings us together. Different interests, different socioeconomic groups, different families, ethnicities, and the list could go on and on and on. But all of us, our greatest need is Christ himself. Buy from me, Church of Laodicea, do not forget me. And he says, this gold has been refined by fire. It's pointing us to the lasting nature, the tested nature of what we have in Christ. See, everything the world gives us, it can, it can fade away. It has an expiration date. Jobs come and go. And sin, there's death of, of loved ones. There's hobbies that wane. There's houses that are sold. There's picket fences that wear down. There's dogs that die. There's stocks that crash. There's money that depreciates. There's cars and trucks that break down. There's technology to become outdated. To quote one of my favorite thought leaders, he's a big deal in Wakulla County, a cold beer's got 12 ounces, a good truck's got maybe 300,000, you only get so much until it's gone. Luke Combs, amen? Right? A couple people excited? But here's the reality, everything the world sells us comes with an expiration date. And the moment that that fire comes, it doesn't last. It's only got so long. 
But what we're seeing here in this letter is this, look to Christ, he's lasting, he's eternal, he's supreme. Church of Laodicea, don't let your things make you miss your true need for Christ. You see, God's not worried about our worldly success or possessions. He's not worried about how many bedrooms our house has. He's not worried about how big our truck is. He's not worried about how many vacations we can take a year. He's not worried about how fast we can retire. He's worried about our spiritual affections and our hearts. Are we worshiping and loving and living for him? This is the problem with the church of Laodicea. Back to verse 18, this is key. He says, white robes, I'll give you white robes. Here's the next thing I want us to see, and this is key to this, our lives need to be covered in Christ. Our lives need to be covered in Christ. See, here's the reality, we can take things, we can take possessions, we can take current situations and we can use those, they'll never actually satisfy us, but you know what they'll do? They'll distract us. They'll distract us just long enough to find the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we think if we can get enough things and newer things and big enough things and better things, if we can do that, then we can distract ourselves long enough just to be happy. But what he's saying is I'll actually give you something that you truly need because you need to be covered in Christ. Well, what does he mean? He means this, that when we rebelled against God, However small we may think that may be, it's a, it's a huge deal. We've chose to rebel against God, to go our own way. And what happens when we rebel against God is we have separation between us and the Father. And so because we have separation from us and the Father, we have guilt. The wages of sin is death, the Bible would say. And so we have a real situation. We, we have a, a real issue. And here's where the gospel comes in because we could never do enough good things, build enough good businesses, help enough people to earn our favor back to God, to clean ourselves. And so here's what Christ did. Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life. And he went to the cross. That's what we celebrate on Good Friday. And on the cross, two important things happened. One, Jesus' perfect life was given to us so that when the Father looks at us, he doesn't see us, but we are covered, we are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the sin that we built up, the punishment that we deserved on the cross of Christ was placed on him. And so we can be clothed in righteousness. Not because we're good people, not because we've done good things for the world, not because we have good businesses, but because we have a God who loves us, because he's good. And when we place our faith in him, we are covered in the righteousness of Christ, and God no longer sees our sin and rebellion, he sees the perfect life of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be covered of. Our lives need to be covered in Christ. That's our greatest need. And our greatest threat for us today in Tallahassee, in the West, is to forget that. Is to get in our trucks, to turn on our air conditioning, go to our favorite restaurant, go home, and do all these things. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but they are bad things if they cause us to miss our greatest thing, Jesus. We're so prone to get caught up in these traps. It's like the old hymn that we often sing, Come Thou Fountain. He says, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for the courts above. Just fall back into that trap, that rhythm, time and time again. And in this text, our Father's not shaming us. 
He's not wanting us to feel bad that we have businesses. He's not wanting us to feel bad that we have possessions. The Bible actually teaches a, a theology of possessions. Possessions aren't the problem. Money's not the problem. Us living in the West is not the problem. And this is not a call out of shame to make us feel guilty. This is God calling us back to himself. Look at verse 19 with me. As many as I love. As many as I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be zealous and repent. Turn from those things. That's what repentance is. We use that word a lot. Repentance is turning from our sin and turning back to Christ. And we live a repentant life and we have to do that time and time again. But God's saying, I love you, come back to me. And this isn't a, a, a cold, joyless type of repentance. This is a repentance with zeal. We can have zeal. The gospel's meant not just to save us, but to burn in our hearts. In that sense, we should be on fire for the Lord. We just forget how much he's done for us, how good he's been to us, what we've had in Christ, because we get caught up in these things time and time again. So we're given this reminder. Look at verse 20. He says this, see, I stand at the door and I knock. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and I will eat with him. And he with me. This is the beautiful thing. We can have fellowship with the Lord. Like we can have him. We think so much about what can we have. What, what jobs can we have? What house can we have? What life can we have? What dog can we have? What retirement can we have? What beach house? We think about all these things. What can we have? What can we have? What can we have? We can have a relationship with God. The creator. The originator of all things as first would say. You can have fellowship with him. Verse 21, to the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. Just as I've also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, look at this verse. He doesn't just sit with us, but he actually shares with us his throne. The victory that we celebrate on Easter is not just a victory that we witness like spectators. It's a victory that we actually get a share in because of Christ. This is why we make such a big deal about Easter because it's not just a victory that we've seen, it's a victory that we share and we celebrate because it means that this is not the end for us. That Christ has made a way. So verse 22, let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to these churches. And then what happens next? What happens in, in verse four? We get a picture of the throne room of God. These majestic beings circled saying, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty? I encourage you just to read that today. Read Revelation 4. This is the God who wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to have fellowship with you. This is what we have in Christ. We see this majestic picture of him in Revelation 4. It's a reminder of who is talking to us, who we have in Christ. And once again, not meant to shame us, but to call us back to him. And I know when we do a series like this, because as we study through these seven churches, it can feel kind of harsh. We cover really heavy things, and it's easy to feel deflated, but I want you to understand this. He says, he says as many as I love. Here's the beautiful thing. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ on our worst day, on our absolute worst day, when we have wandered far from what God has called of our lives, he still loves you. He still loves you. 
On the other hand, on your best day, when everything seems to be going right, when you feel like your heart's in the right place, your head's in the right place, your family's doing well, your business is doing well, you feel like, man, I'm just in the right direction, you still need his grace. Because apart from the grace of Jesus Christ, we are naked. This is what this reminds us of. So as we close out this series, just a a few takeaways I want to bring before you. The first is this, to keep the end in mind. Keep the end in mind. And this is tough because we have things that need to get done. Like I can't go to the grocery store today and then not get my wife what she needs, go home and say, I'm sorry, I'm just so heavenly minded, I couldn't even think about what you needed, right? (laughs) It's tough. We got things we got to do. We got decisions we have to make. We got kids we got to raise. We got things going on in our life and we have to fight to stay eternal minded. Fight to stay eternal minded. Put people in your life that can help you when you're getting so caught up in your current situation that can actually help walk you and point you back to the gospel. The second thing is this, keep God's word at the center. Keep God's word at the center of your life. We don't have to guess. Here's the church of Laodicea and they're getting direct revelation from God. He is speaking to them. They can actually know what God thinks, what he wants for their church, what he wants for their life. How amazing is that? And here's the deal, we have it too. It's called the Bible. God has spoke. He's told us what he wants of our life. And we have access to it every single day. So we have to keep God's word at the center. How do you stay eternal minded? Number one, you stay in his word. You allow that to shape you. And the last takeaway I want us to think about as a church is this, to keep fighting to lift up the gospel. This is our mission field. We don't live in a third world country Thank God for the missionaries who are there. We don't live in a country filled with war. Thank God for the missionaries who are there. We live in a city and in a country that is filled with affluence and complacency and self-satisfaction. Thank God for the missionaries who are here. Continue to lift up the gospel. First and foremost to yourself because we live in that tension of being a child of God and a child who's not yet home. But secondly, lift up that gospel to others. The people in your life, the family members, the neighbors, the friends that you have, they're shopping. They're shopping. They're looking for hope, for security, for joy, for purpose. And they're shopping and they're shopping and they're shopping. And we have the true thing that they need. We have the gold that's been refined by fire. We know the one true God. So lift him up. That could start as an invite to a service and you having intentional conversations around it. That's my story. But it could start with a a coffee break at work or a conversation with a sibling on the phone or over the holidays sitting down at a meal and being intentional with what you talk about. It could be a lot of things, but I want to encourage us as we look at this and we're reminded of the gospel that this is not just a gospel that we need. This is a gospel that the world needs around us. I pray that we keep that in mind as we head into the Easter season. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity to gather this morning as a church. God, we're grateful that in our need, in our shame, in our brokenness, in our separation, Father, we're grateful that you've come for us, that you've made a way for us to have fellowship and relationship with you. I pray that as we head into this Easter season, and there's a lot of talk about Jesus, Father, we hope that what we say about you would 
true in our life. Father, we pray that you would forgive us in the many ways that we let you down and fall short and that we'd be reminded of your grace daily. We thank you for this church and how you're working in it. We ask that you continue to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen.